Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is another episode in the series on radicalism in the English Revolution. My guest today is Nigel Smith, and we are here to talk about the ranters. Nigel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's begin. Before we really get to who they are and their ideas, can you situate them a little bit in this in this revolutionary moment, what time are they active? Maybe where are they active? What are what are these ranters up to and in the arc of the revolution? Okay, well, if we speak of them as a group, and that's a problematic thing, <laughs> but if we speak of them as a group, they emerge in the period after, well, after the, um, the, the trial and execution of the king and the establishment of the of the Republic. But that very establishment also uh, is, is, uh, results in the defeat of the Levelers. The, the Levelers being the, the, the popular movement that had tried to uh, persuade uh, the people with power, the army and uh, one faction of the parliament, the, the so-called independence, to uh, broaden the suffrage. Often it is said that they're, they're real interest in broadening the, the suffrage was to to enable greater religious toleration because many of many of these people had religious views which were uh, beginning to go far beyond uh, a puritan or calvinist consensus position so the, the there are there are two kinds of levelers um there are the the civilian levelers very identifiable in the city of london and also the levelers in the new model army, sometimes called agitators. And they had tried to make these constitutional reforms adopted in the um, very rapid movement in late 1648 into early 1649 to, to put the king on trial and, and, and to execute him. There was leveler resistance in the early months of the Republic, but it was suppressed, famously in English history now. And there was a, a sense that another solution had to be found because leveling with the sword, as uh, Abiezer Cobb, the chief ranter, would say, was no solution. So the ranters were happen happening at the same time as the diggers. So the, the digging the land in common with Gerard Winstanley as the most visible leader um, and the most visible community being... Um, on St. George's Hill in um, Surrey. That was one solution to the failure of levelling. And the other solution was, was ranting. Now, what does ranter, what is the ranter position? Well, it's, it's many different things. And, and some have argued quite influentially in the 1980s that it wasn't anything at all. <laughs> it was a, it was a, a chimera made up by um, hostile, um, largely Orthodox Puritan commentators who who were worried um, about a, a threat that it presented to the social order. So this is this is what it was as Puritan as the Puritan Revolution through the 1640s triumphed. We can say that as Parliament went on to win the Civil War. So much more liberal or different versions of Puritanism emerged, which um, I don't think any of the Presbyterians um, who, who were the mainstream Puritan faction opposed, opposed originally to the king, certainly to the 
the the the the Church of England as it then was, far beyond the reforms they wanted. And um, the theology that is usually associated with with Randerism is called antinomianism, quite literally against the law. So, put in a nutshell, the position that you feel assured that you are saved, so that nothing you do can endanger the position of your salvation. You have grace. And so the, the, the theology emerges as a, as a reaction against the severely disciplinary control of orthodox Protestant Calvinism. You, may, you might say that the, the High Church of England, Archbishop Lord's version, which Charles I particularly liked, was also a reaction against it in in what the Puritans would have said was a reversion to Romish practices, ceremonies, and um, a pulling away from hard predestination theology, the belief that that um, you are destination des- predestined before you are born either to damnation or to salvation and and your life is spent looking for uh, signs of which way things are going to go. The ranters would say that's a, a doctrine of despair. And and so the sense that your belief was a sign of your own state of grace, that you didn't have to obey a moral code like the Ten Commandments, that was the obvious one, and also that you could not, um, that, that there wasn't any point in obeying church rules like ordinances, particular, particular um, orders of service. You should certainly read the Bible and you should discuss it. You should know it. You should be able to debate it. You, you sit there with your fellow believers and um, you, 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 as it were, enhance your, your sense of salvation by, by worshipping God, listening to sermons, long sermons, and uh, increasingly experiencing a spiritual religion with an inward sense of um, inspiration and um, and salvation that is progressively relying less and less on things visible and external, kind of levitation. We usually talk about two kinds of antinomianism. Antinomianism is very, very popular with with many people who who were not at all ranters, but they were they're particularly attracted to the sermons of. A, um, a divine called Tobias Crisp, who had a living, a rich living in Wiltshire. And his sermons, for instance, became very popular reading matter in the New Model Army. So the two kinds of antinomianism that we have are, are as it were, theoretical antinomianism, where, you, you know, you, you are simply uh, very serenely aware of your, your grace, or practical <laughs> antinomianism, where you actually do things that some people might consider are sinful. And this leads us to another aspect that does arise in some of the Ranter writings, and uh, it's sometimes associated with later, later antinomians, like, like Rasputin, the, the um, ill-fated advisor in the, the, uh, the late days of the Tsar's court in Russia. Um, you've got to know sin, you've got to sin <laughs> and pass through it. And if, if your state of grace is secure, it doesn't really matter what you do. So you can see that that form is a particularly intense way of combating um, very disciplinary Calvinism, which is um, 
in a sense, well, Calvinism is trying to inculcate a, a, a severely um, rigid personal discipline. So there are two features that, that the rant has practiced. One is swearing. Is that... As, is that why they're called renters? I realize I don't yes, actually know. Yes, 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 that's why they're called renters. <laughs> okay, <laughs> blaspheming. So, um, and the the most no, the most famous ranter, Abiezer Cop, who was a who was born in sixteen twenty one. He's from Warwick in the uh, West Midlands, and the son of um, an artisan, got to be well educated, proved to be a talent at the local grammar school, and was eventually sent to Oxford and had the power of preaching. By the time he's taken his ranter position in the later 1640s, he's clearly rejecting disciplinary the disciplinary Calvinism that he was encouraged to have before. And um, is goes to London extravagantly swearing as a way of attacking what by then he regarded as severely selfish Puritan piety. That, that Puritanism was was a justification for a covetousness. And so in Cop's writing, there is a kind of egalitarian message. And he deliberately embraces and kisses destitute people, especially women. His own writing is a kind of psychomachia. It's a, a drama of finding within him a character whom he calls the Holy Scripturian whore, a female incarnation of the Calvinist um, the Calvinist version of the scripture, who is telling him not to do this because it'll be bad for him. And he, uh, as it were, he's exercising this spirit by swearing and casting it out of himself, uh, and hugging and clipping the she-gypsies um, dearly. So what he means by gypsies, I don't think we've thought hard enough about yet. But if, if, if they were, as it were, nomadic people who were living outside of normal English society, then, then they were probably poor. And um, he is manifesting um, community with them. That's the important thing. The holy community. And God is within you. Um, Cop believes that when he is open, opening his mouth in this frame of mind, God is speaking. And he has a parenthetical other voice, which is he, Abiezer Cop, who sort of speaks in the tract as, as well. So God is speaking, I, the mighty God, say. And then, and then, you know, a, a couple of sentences later, there's a parenthesis that opens and it says, but, but if, you, um, if you meet anyone, you don't have to tell them this. So it's a kind of really interesting schizophrenic writing and is, is, I think, belongs with the best of Puritan spiritualism, the sense of a personal connection with, with God or with divinity in some way. So Cop's, Cop was certainly in trouble. Um, he was active in Coventry, which is, of course, very close to, to Warwick. And in the couple of years before ranting emerges, you'd really call Cop a seeker. These are people who are in, they were sort of, they had been Baptists, basically, and believed in adult baptism. That would be the, the main thing. Um, they'd, they'd imbibed antinomian theology. They wanted, they'd flipped from predestination to, to this version of antinomianism. And um, some of them were actually even preaching universal redemption, that everyone is saved, come what may. You can, you can see the sense in which the pressures of the time and, and the kind of lives they'd lived, searching 
through different versions of English Protestantism to, to, find, to find salvation, that they throw over predestination in the end because it was all too traumatic. Uh, and there'd been a civil war and the, the social order had been totally taken apart. So um, a community of people in a, in a small village somewhere between Oxford and Coventry, that's where um, Cop was hanging out for some time. It's very interesting that he, he chose to attack in his first significant tract um, the gloriously titled Some Sweet Sips of Some Spiritual Wine. He actually attacked the order of grammar and basically said that, you know, when, when people, and he mostly meant at this time boys, when they learned Latin and were taught the complexities of Latin grammar, they're, they're actually misunderstanding it. It's, it's, it's not um, the different moods of Latin should be understood to take you to the spirit within. And the optative mood is on the way to it. So it's a, a transformation of formal learning, which Presbyterian Puritanism was very good at using, and the, the learned English Baptists also, great men of learning, scriptural commentators, some of them. It's flipped into a sense of imminent inspiration. It's not that Jesus is returning sometime soon. He's already here, mm. right within us. That is it. Now, the other, the other branch, if you will, of Ranterism is, or the other branch of practical antinomianism <laughs> is the only way we can experience this community, this revelation of God within us is to, is to um, throw off all social bonds and commune in nature. And that's where the allegations of free love, of um, sex outside marriage or, or sex beyond marriage and, and orgies, communal sex, are made. It's very, very hard to pin down what actually happened. Um, and the hostile treatises that began to appear present the ranters as a bunch of people who met for orgies in, in inns, public houses. Um, and, and it's, if not satanic, certainly pagan. There's a certain amount of rhetoric in that. And so the other, the other ranter writer, uh, the second most significant ranter writer is Lawrence Clarkson, who really had his, his own following, even though he and Cop knew about each other. Clarkson says in his autobiography, which he wrote long after he, was, he ceased to be a ranter, called The Lost Sheep Found, he talks about preaching and he had a wife, but he went on the road as a travelling preacher and he, he celebrated the spirit by sleeping with other women. But by then, when he was writing, he was a Muggletonian and he joined another sect, whom I guess in a future episode of your podcast you can discuss. <laughs> and we, we, won't, we won't bother okay. to talk about them. But, um, you know, is he reliable? That's the question. But there, what I would say, first of all, that, that Clarkson's theology, which is basically metaphysically trying to abolish the difference between light and dark and good and evil, and, and basically says every, everything is one thing, a single eye, all light, no, darks, no darkness. So you, you've got to embrace experience and find your divinity within it, however it comes. So that's a sort of different spin on um, antinomianism to cop. 
Um, Coppy's, Coppy's well-educated and um, Clarkson is not. <laughs> He's kind of uneducated. And his first pieces of writing are, are very hard to read. He is the Cormac McCarthy character of the um, English Revolution. <laughs> there was a group in London called My One Flesh, which several people talk about. Clarkson claims to have been a member. Cop knew about it. I think something was going on there. I've come to see, and I need to write more about this, even in a Baptist church, with the drive to insisting on the perfection, the saved status the, um, of every member of a church, so that you want to, everyone in it ought to be a believer. And there are, even before the Civil War, there are, there are proto-sectarian groups where the, the allegation was, and I think fairly reasonably so, that, that women who were married to other people have been charismatic, they've been very impressed, I'm sorry, very impressed by the charisma of this or that preacher, and they, as it were, fallen in love with mm -hmm. them. And, and I think these dynamics exist in Baptist churches and some of these seeker groups that emerge from them, so that on the, on the other side of the, uh, the time of the Commonwealth, there is a, 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 a well-known, by, by the time we get to the 1650s, he's a Baptist. He's several other things before that, called Thomas Tillam, T-I-L-L-A-M. As an, an Americanist, you've probably read his poem on New England. It's in many anthologies. Yeah, it's been a while, yeah. though. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Ab absolutely. It is like the bread and butter of early American literature. Yeah. He, did, he, he, did, he was briefly in New England. Tillam... We've just, as it's very exciting, we've just uncovered a manuscript treatise in a library in Germany. Um, Tillam wrote Justifying Divorce. And uh, now he's not the only Baptist to do that. And there were some, there was a, a female Baptist street preacher called Elizabeth Attaway who got hold of Milton's Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce in 1643 and started saying, this is it, this is my guidebook. Um, I want to get rid of my husband because he doesn't, he's not going to, he doesn't, just not in the same position as me. Um, and I need to marry, um, I need a new husband in the faith. And she married a, a, another uh, charismatic preacher called William Jenny. Or they were common law man and wife. I'm um, or they or they married each other by the rules of their breakaway church. Oh, right. And you know, to the orthodox and you know, most people this is really terrifying. It's people making up the law feel fit, see fit. So I think that the 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 feature of unorthodox, unbounded uh, heretical sexuality uh, is is a consequence of the drive towards the perfected antinomian church. And uh, it is certainly there's a strain of leveler and digger drive towards social equality or better representation in it and uh, you can see dynamics of the authority of of male leaders the authority of female leaders it's quite beautifully visionary in places cop has a female follower in um some sweet sips of some spiritual wine who imagines she imagines she tells Cop, um, she sent him a letter and he writes it down, or rather he, it's printed in the tract. And it's, it's an account of a dream she had in which she saw her own liberty, her mm. own spiritual liberty. <laughs> she was in a, uh, you know, an idyllic pastoral scene in a field by a stream. There were animals and fish all around her. 
being free <laughs> and and she she tried to put a um a collar on a uh, an animal and it and it so this is so the, isn't that interesting uh so this is a way of imagining you know kinds of freedom and empowerment or fusion with your creator beyond and outside of the normal forms of hierarchy and disciplinary order by which english people lived and they felt justified in doing this because everything had literally fallen apart yeah yeah so well, i want to jump in there and say first of all what you just said is the perfect expression of of what we might think of as anarchism or anarchy everything has fallen apart and then a new order needs to be constructed so that can that can open up into why i'm interested in these people and we can talk about all sorts of things like punk rock and and Emerson will get there. The only other thing that I wanted to establish though, before we move on to these questions is, you know, if we've got this question of whether or not the ranters actually existed and whether this was a, a, a real thing, my only big remaining like establishing question is, and I think you've touched on this, but just the sort of social element of this, it sounds like there's not maybe ranting communities in the same way there's digging communities or to, and what are the relationships between people like cop and Clarkson? I just want the listeners to be able to sort of imagine what, what this movement looked like. If the levelers were, were, were printing pamphlets and agitating and doing demonstrations and the diggers were diggers, were the ranters ranting together or was it a pamphlet based movement or what, what did it look like? It was both. Both. Okay. Um, just and and I so there was a there was a a printer in London called Giles Calvert, or a publisher, who who thought that this sudden sprouting at the at the very crisis of the English Revolution, this this sudden sprouting of many different versions of a kind of religion of spiritual inspiration of of an an inward um, an inward God or a spirit within that was sustaining everything. He he happily printed the works of many different figures, in, including the Ranters, and his shop was known as a meeting mm. place. Cop went to it, Clarkson went to it. We know that, they say so. So, and we also know that these tracts got around the country, people were fascinated by them, you know, uh, Puritan churches, congregational churches, self-governing congregations out there. For instance, there's, there's a case in Norfolk, the, uh, in Norwich, the third most important city in the country, where, you know, somebody's daughter has gotten hold of the fiery <laughs> flying roll, cops a fiery flying roll, and they ha they talk about it in the church meetings. What are we going to do? And at the same time, these figures are moving around the country. And um, I think I think it looks like Clarkson was finding it easy to subsist on voluntary support mm -hmm. contributions and so on. How, how this is all financed is a very interesting question and, and something one, one um, again, we, we, we should know more about. At the end of the day, the charismatic millenarian chiastic movement that emerges is the Quakers. And it's often said that many, many people who'd been seekers, diggers and ranters, eventually found Quakerism as the most robust form. And, and as we now understand quite well, the Quakers were very successful at using itinerant preaching and the printing press hand in hand. They'd go and hand out treatises for free 
you know, half a day ahead of the arrival of a preacher. Okay. Um, that's um, fantastic. I can't wait to ask Kate Peters about this when, when we talk about the Quakers. But I want to get to punk rock soon, but it looked like you had something to say when I when I used the, the A word, when I talked about the sort of anarchy of the country leading to anarchism of the ranters. So I wanted to see if you if you had a comment you wanted to get in there before we... Well, I don't... Oh, I was... I was... I suppose I'd be a little bit... I, I don't think they saw themselves as, you know, um, Kropotkinian anarchists. Yeah. Peaceful, peaceful anarchists. Mm-hmm. I think they thought that the order that you know god's order was was to be found imminently in themselves and they were coming awake to it and if they simply um acknowledged that then and they would they would find liberty and freedom spiritual freedom as they as they understood it they would all be liberated and everything would be everything would be fulfilled i don't think they think very hard at all about a, a social order. No speculation about how you would deal justice, which is in Winstanley's yes. Law of Freedom, and enables people to say very, you know, that, that Winstanley's social order was in fact very, very disciplinary and harsh. Cer- certainly by the time of that pamphlet, I was I spoke to John Morrill and Bernard Cap about the question of whether we can we can draw a line between the early Winstanley and the later Winstanley, and the answer is I think we don't know to what extent yes. we can draw a line. Uh, it's very hard to see how being a ranter went with everyday life. Mm. You know, is do you rant in the evenings? <laughs> like you, you know, you go to an alehouse in the, you know. So I think these are these are matters still to be addressed, but there's not really a political theory in ranter writing. It operates on the level of I think how communities work. Joseph Salmon, who, if you will, is the I would say the third most significant ranter writer. And of course, all the time we're we're using evidence from those who were who were literate uh-huh. and got to publish. There are lots of people, other people who professed and practiced, but leave no trace. So what would they have said could we interview them for a podcast? Mm. <laughs> I you know, it's it, it's a very it's of course an open question. So um I I think it the he says he 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 first of all when I edited the ranter writings in the early 1980s um that we knew that there was a tract called divinity anatomized but it had presumed to be lost no one had a copy of it it then turned up mm. at the um the clark library in los angeles and uh, it it's the, the i would say so in my second edition of the ranter writings we have a copy of it but the thing about it is the language of it is extremely biblically symbolic and in places very erotic. And I can imagine that that it afforded a sense of um, holy community which, which embraced um, sanctified sexuality. But Salmon, in his recantation tract, does say, we were very foolish to try this on. Of course no one would understand us. And I, and I think that's it. I'm reminded of the uh, the Branch Davidians in Waco, and which was going on, you know, in the ninety. It was in the nineteen nineties, and I had, you know, I'd published on the Ranters by then, and and much more, and had, um, and was thinking, uh, channeling it through my knowledge of the seventeenth century. But they were a, a similar sect that had within. Were they? Well, it was a Baptist church. 
I believe so. I've, it's, yes, I mean, look, I the 90s was a while right. ago, but that sounds right to me. Yeah. David Koresh. And I think, I think they, they had created, you know, a polyamorous community, I believe, and then got into an unfortunate fight with the FBI. So the, the, uh, the attraction of, and the connection of alternative or heterodox sexual <laughs> practice in perfected religions... Um, is something we see. It's you know, Mormonism in one of its versions, um, not accepted at all in the rest of society. So I, I, I think that's a that's a pretty big part of the mindset that gets you to to ranterism. In the moment of the defeat of the Levellers, the the you know rebellion by by swearing and by by free love of course is a, is a is a potent objection to the 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 elite that ran the republic the the gentry and largely gentry elite that that ran the republic saying you know we're not we're not having this yeah it and, seems uh, like the the both the fifth monarchists and the whatever we call them the bare bones parliament it seems like the the ranters would be perhaps their their greatest fear Yes. Well, the, so the fifth monarchists are the next phase. So the, 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 I'm sure Bernard Cap gave you a very accurate view of, of how the idea of reforming the constitution, perfecting the republic, as it were, in order to facilitate the return of King Jesus becomes um, a, another a form of resistance to the, 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 the authority of the Commonwealth. It's a split really within the republic and yes most most of those most of the fifth monarchists are are, are kind of calvinists yeah but they're all there is an antinomian edge to it oh, of interesting course, some of them and so and so the you know the did did bernard talk about anna trapnell the prophet no i don't uh, i don't well, believe we did yeah well, that was remiss oh, well that's my um, fault probably i'm no 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 <laughs> but her visionary her visions she she she's like um Punk predecessors of Patty Smith of of the Fifth Monarchist. She she prophesied in public, uh, in Whitehall, and it's a kind of, and and garnered uh, you know a, a serious following, um, and and she was uh, you know allegedly in a trance, and what she said was taken down. It's amazing, colourful imagery. Oliver Cromwell as a as a persecuting bull, <laughs> carnivalesque history of uh, the times in a pocket in an apocalyptic mode. Um, but it's, it's of a piece with um, Abiezer Kopp's reworking of uh, uh, biblical imagery. Yeah, this is fascinating because um, in my conversation with Bernard, I think the the fifth monarchists ended up a little a little dour, a little straight laced, which certainly befits the Calvinist. Um, but this this element no, of I, them, I, I think there there's a there's another side to it. Yes, the, um, this is the Book of Revelation coming out. I, in I would I would feel. Something was very wrong if I was disagreeing with Bernard Cap. I'm not saying you're disagreeing with Bernard no, Cap. That's... No, 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 no. That's good. That's good. <laughs> you know, so you know, there, I think there is a a strong, there is an antinomian edge to fifth monarchism, and 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 so a kind of um, a highly enthusiastic imagination yeah this sounds um, like blake almost i keep making these connections to the romantics but well that's right that's right and you you need we probably talked about ep thompson's witness against the beast no we did not right and you haven't read it i have not read it well so ep thompson the great 
Yes, um, I mean, I I guess explain for the listeners who E.P. Thompson is. I'm sorry. Uh, Edward Thompson, E.P. Thompson, was a left-wing historian, um, mostly concerned with the 18th and the 19th centuries, the the, the history of the the English working class, the the British proletariat as it emerged in the Industrial Revolution. And he was very good at tying um, the great works of Romanticism to to that, to to that history, that people's history. So his great work is The Making of the English mm-hmm. Working Classes. It's still a great work. I agree. Um, it's a great book. It, that book I have read and it is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are not worthy. <laughs> and um, one of the things he got interested in, he'd, you know, he'd been, uh, I, I do believe he was a, a little younger than Christopher Hill, the the historian, the left wing historian of the 17th century, but I think they were they were both interested in making making links, and and Thompson got interested in exploring the the what happened to radical sectarianism, radical Puritanism after 1660, after the failure of the English Revolution. And he had he found some evidence that William Blake's mother may have been a Muggletonian, and so Witness Against the Beast is really it's not it's not a proof it's a it's a history of his journey of discovery and and he and the amazing thing was that what what the book also well there's there's a book before it called The World of the Muggletonians. Thompson found the last Muggletonian <laughs> who was an apple farmer in Kent, and. Um, the the thing with the Muggletonians is you you had to accept the authority of the two original prophets. So so Lodowick Muggleton and John Reeve claimed to be the two last prophets named in the Book of Revelation, and uh, to be saved you just had to accept that. <laughs> and the Muggletonians had a, a a very artisanally appropriate materialist um, cosmology that God was like a bloke as we say in England, a guy who lived three miles above the surface of the earth. You know, he was a bearded gentleman. And they they had one, you know, they survived uh, into the 18th century and into the 19th century and into the 20th century. And they rather secretive um, little ultra-Protestant sect. And they, they got, they had a di- an annual dinner, the Muggletonians' dinner. And they were very good at flying under the radar of the law. And so... In a house in London was their was their archive, and the thing about Muggletonian life is that if you, this is I think how I believe how it works. You had to say to whoever you choose to say to, do you accept the authority of Muggleton and Reeve as the two last <laughs> prophets? Most people are going to say no, <laughs> and you're going to say, well, then you're damned. And um, and some people wouldn't, and that's how they kept going as a very small group they kept reprinting their works and the archive was in a house in london their headquarters as it were where they met once a once a year for a hearty meal that house was bombed in the second world war and uh, i i forget the name of the the last muggletonian philip someone he heard about this and with his apple truck he drove in you know through the smoke of blitzed london found, went to the house and from its smoking ruins took what was left of the Muggletonian archive. And in the 1980s, you could buy some of these works. Um, I wish, I was, a, I was a penniless graduate student then, <laughs> so I couldn't afford anything. 
but but the, you know these you could buy these books of 18th and 19th century reprints of earlier 17th century works and uh, the the sect was going to die out with this gentleman because he couldn't bring himself to give his daughters his two daughters the the prophetic witness because he couldn't bear the thought that they would say you're off your rocker dad and and then he'd have to tell them they were damned so i think that's wow. how it works wow well, and in that community that in that community clarkson ended up ah uh, right of course yes we that's that's the connective tissue to blake and this this undercurrent of of radicalism which pops up in britain and indeed in the united states and, and for I centuries think, you know there's there's a lot you can say is in common with you know, level of supporters. These are these are these are artisan people. They're trades people. You know, barrel makers. They they make money and they need to be literate to do so. And they're 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 more likely to be urban than rural. And they they're quite you know, so long as they prevail in business, they they're quite happy to to look after themselves, and they don't want to be interfered with <laughs> by a state religion, which they might come to regard as ridiculous. Yeah, well, that's that's what I focused um, oh, on. That's what I focused on with Bernard Cap was the Fifth Monarchist's desire to implement a state religion. And I think that's why we uh, focus less on the sort of outlandish nature of their ideals. We talked about this uh, a little bit before. Um, I believe you are the first and maybe only guest I've got lined up uh, in this series who is uh, from the field of literature, like I am, as opposed to the field of of history. And your book or the second revised edition of it draws some real parallels between the ranters and the the punk elements resonating with the the radicalism of the 20th century okay that's 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 good so the 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 second edition of the ranters which i published in 2014 that's to say an anthology of i think practically all of the known writings and more were known in 2014 than were known when I first published it as a graduate student in 1983. And also it's fair to say that the the parallels between uh, post-Second World War culture and uh, this aspect of 17th century radicalism had not been seen in 1983. Some of them had, but others were not. And certainly the... the um, the the connection with punk hadn't been mapped out because punk was happening. Yeah, punk was new. I I started. I read the Ranters first um, as a second year undergraduate. Maybe a yes. I think a second year undergraduate. That would have been 1978. <laughs> that was that was when it was happening. The bit that in a in a fit of appropriately enthusiasm, a fit of enthusiasm in in putting the Ranter materials together for the second edition that made me miss something is that, of course, um, the Ranters were in the memory of the folk protest movement of the 1960s. So not loud, brash electric guitars with swear words, but but um, Pete Seeger, as it were, mm. and, and uh, a, a British counterpart to Seeger, who got a lot of attention in the earlier 60s and had spots on television as a kind of um, guitar 
strumming prophet, Leon Russelson, who wrote a series of really great songs about the English radicals. And to my shame, I, I, I failed to get a, a paragraph or two on, on Leon in, though I should have done. Um, and indeed, when we had a public event launching the book at the um, LRB bookshop, the London Review of Books bookshop, uh, near the British Museum in Bloomsbury in London, uh, Leon came out and played his song about Abbey as a cop. I think I think the, the the most striking aspect of the the briefly lived Ranta movement in the 17th century what connected with um, with the you know with um, hippies in the late 1960s and punks in the later 1970s was their theatrical, gestural, highly gestural language of protest, that it was an instant demonstration of we're not taking um, the forms of oppression that you're putting on us, and this is our way of telling you so. The, the question of whether the ranters really pursued free love, the, whatever, whatever we decide that means, there was, of course, some of that in the late 60s, so far as I know, not much of it at all in in punk. The key. F- so so what I was doing in the in the two thousand in the preface and the revised introduction to the to the two thousand and fourteen edition was picking up on what had been said. And I I so um, the highly influential historian of um, music in modern American culture, Grail Marcus, surely has a claim to be one of Bob Dylan's chroniclers in the 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 most perceptive way. I had, uh, and of course, Grail writes about many other uh, figures in popular culture. I met him at Princeton. He taught for Princeton for a bit early in my time here. And um, somebody took me to meet him. And we did talk about the ranters. And uh, one thing that people may not realize is that Grail regarded as his UK counterpart, as a as a historian of popular music and and its cultural dimensions, Nick Nick Cohn, K O H N, and um, it was um, it was uh, Nick Cohn's father, Norman Cohn, who wrote the famous book, The Pursuit of the Millennium, which was really about um, mystical anarchists in the Middle Ages, but it had an anthology of ranter texts which he saw as an, an echo. So so. So I, I, I think I think Grail had a sort of sense of personal connection, and he he wanted to write a he he offered to write a foreword for my edition and then couldn't do it, so so I wrote it instead. <laughs> um, but but it is it is a testimony to people like Christopher Hill, who who uh, you know, and A. L. Morton, he's he's true, uh, you know, a real a non-academic British communist. Scholar, uh, one of his books, the, the World of the Ranters, published in 1970, picking up on the analogy with the hippies. The, those books were widely available, especially in small left-wing bookshops in in uh, in campuses near your hometown across the UK. <laughs> and uh, as as punk broke out, and people found different ways of doing it, so some of those um, there were bands. Punk and post-punk bands who picked it up. So there was a band called the Levelers, and you know you better inter- you better call them up. I think they're still around. And inter- they are they are still around. I'm I doubt they'll come on my show, but I am going to ask them. Why not? Yeah, you better do that. And uh, 
um, and I, you know, the Mekons who um, who Grail Marcus particularly revered, and their song it's called "The Old Road to Jerusalem." Ah, uh, yes, which which opens um, one of their albums, and uh, I think that's a that's a brilliant running together of the uh, in in this in the compressed space of a song lyric of the contents of hills the world turned upside down and ep thompson's the making of the english working classes and other works so uh, yeah yeah I, I, I don't know if that gives you um a, a context my my view about my personal view about the legacy of radicalism is that it doesn't belong to anyone and the the the, the basic leveller ideas are, are enshrined in British political practice. So it, it's not as if they belong to any particular movement, although, of course, they were seen as the Labour movement and the Labour Party emerged in the early 20th century. The, the historiography of the levellers at that stage was connected to them. But where we are now, I think the groups like the Ranters are for, are for, for everyone to to draw something from whatever your position is the you know i i used to think the the ranters were just really exciting on account of the 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 complexity and 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 delightfulness and sheer fun of their protest and their sense of self irony um you know with abby as a cop saying you know i've got god inside me but don't tell anyone so hilariously you know, there was a kind of wisdom, a self-reflective wisdom about what they believed they had in their possession. But um, so I thought it was all fun. With, well, 40 years of life lived uh, in between, the, the, the more we know about some of the sexual ideas of the ranters, the more it's kind of terrifying. You know, how would, how would, how would that work? Although, of course, there have been many, many experiments and uh, I, I, I think that many, many of the ranters were, were Baptists and probably went back to being Baptists. And the, the, uh, there were some experiments to produce um, polygamous societies, sort of Baptists as Mormons in, well, in the years after the return of the monarchy. Almost, I think all of these instances are exiled communities which which had trouble sustaining themselves and were not well tolerated the language that they use in their writings is not very far different from some of the ranter texts so i so i you know again the baptists would would not be keen on they certainly wouldn't be keen on that sort of thing being known in the 1670s through to the 1770s they wouldn't want it known and so we're we're still recovering those those connections there was no of course there wasn't a ranter party any more than there was a leveler party there was a sense that you that there was this huge transformation going on you know society through the civil war had become completely dislocated it must have been incredibly shocking and and people thought that the last times were upon them and that that they were going to be um, rapturously transformed one impulse was in a sense the the position that actually we might not need, we might be able to rise, they call it rising above ordinances, by which they meant we don't need to go to church anymore. We'll just be imminently in a state of grace as people on this earth. We will have reverted to the state of Adam and Eve before the fall. And with the coming down to immediate causes, um, once the once the uh, the republic had been created, the monarchy had ended, the king was executed, 
abolition of the House of Lords and the Episcopal, the, the bishops, everything is up for grabs. And, and then the levellers are, are defeated. Their proposals don't make it into the new order. And also the diggers don't. And on the back of what I think somebody like Abby Azacop saw as a problem with the diggers is, is that the solution wasn't in doing anything materially, as it were. That In fact, if you looked within yourself, we were already transformed. And as Cop saw it, the real blight was selfishness. Selfishness produced by Calvinist theology, which had underwritten, uh, as it were, the, the natural urge to hold on to what you've got in a society which was largely um, riven with poverty. So I, th I think that the, the failure of the English Revolution, as it were, the defeat of the levellers and, and the, the, the fact that the, um, the diggers, as it were, weren't winning would lead him to project um, an instant, uh, what he calls spirit levelling, which shouldn't be confused with spirit level. So he had to, the theology of claiming that God was in you, that there wasn't anything such as sin. Sin was a mechanism for disciplining people projected by the ruling classes and their their hench persons, the, the clergy in the established church. The truth was other. And, and the first thing we will do is end, end hoarding up things. We will share everything we've got and therefore everything will be good and everyone will be happy. The meaning of cops extraordinary language of gesture. Um, and he describes extravagantly running through the streets of London, uh, kissing the foulest people he can find, um, showing, proving the arrival of selflessness by embracing them and enjoying a community of, of spirit. And th that um, is quite, quite astonishing and striking. It was interpreted as disruptive, subversive of the order and profoundly dangerous. We have to remember that everyone assumed that there was a divine economy of rewards and punishments and um, society was ordered as it was in order to those rewards and punishments appropriately lived out on, on God's earth. So even though um, there had been a, a, a substantial revision um, of the English constitution, as, as Ariel very, very capably showed in his talk, there was still um, a, a way to go. So the, I think that the uh, cops, cops protest, if we can call it a, a language of protest gestures, which also included swearing um, as, as a way of um, attacking Calvinist predestination theology, because um, it turned out that it, it was merely a form of torture. So, so so I and I, I see maybe there are three ways, there are three kinds of ranterism. There's no evidence, as far as I can see, in anything that Cop wrote or evidence that we actually have about him that he practiced free love. Lawrence Clarkson, Clarkson did practice a kind of sleeping with other people, with women out of wedlock in the name of the free spirit, as a fulfillment of the, the fact that God was in all of us. And we, we as it were, uh, sex was a, was a celebration of that and an acknowledgement of it. That, of course, is a, a theology, a the, if you will, a theology of divine imminence, <laughs> which is shared with Winstanley and the diggers. And, and so we have to remember that um, during the life of the 
the, the commune on St George's Hill in Surrey. There was a Randra invasion at one point. It's not clear how it happened. <laughs> when Stanley wrote an, a, an outraged and affrighted tract about these these ranters coming coming among them, and if you've seen the movie about Win Stanley by Kevin Brownlow from 1975, that's a that's one of the, the that there's a ranter moment in the in the film. I haven't I haven't seen that film. I've I've meant to for a while. I'll definitely, I believe it is available online. I'll put a link to it. The third thing is is the the job of the I'm. I'm I'm talking, I'm simplifying this. The, the evidence about Ranterism is complex. And, uh, and I, could, I might say more, a little bit more about that as we go on. But the third main thing is the image of Ranterism generated by hostile press. And um, the, the, uh, the main thing is uh, the, the presentation of ranting as a kind of satanic, nearly satanic ritual, people getting together in um, inns, um, taking their clothes off, um, eating and drinking heartily and, and, do, and doing what they wanted to do. There was a lot of, there was, it's presented as, as ritualistic. And um, there's, to me, there's, although it, I don't think it's identified as witchcraft, there's, a, there's, a, there's something of, you know, profoundly anti-Christian and pagan about the way it's being presented. That's not really the view that you get in Lawrence Clarkson's writing, a, a single eye, all light, no darkness. That's really more like a, um, I hate to use the word Nietzschean, but it's, a, it's a, because, because, you know, we, we just be, blur, you know, be being anachronistic. But a bit like the genealogy of morals, it does invert conventional categories in a, of, of, you know, he's saying basically there's no difference between the light forces and the dark forces. And it's, it's all one in the divine energy that permeates where we are. And it's a, you know, Clarkson's theology, which he can, you know, he's, he's, he's barely able to express it. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's an artisanal person and uh, literacy would have been uh, beyond him uh, and, and until quite late uh, in his life or later in his life. But that many of the ideas that he appears to be expressing belong with what's becoming better known as esoteric religion at the time, and and in the hands of educated people is is interesting as it were and different. But but in the context of Clarkson and and his um, travels through the countryside, putting out ranter views, it's of course much more disturbing. Okay, a couple things I want to jump in and say. Well, first of all, when you were talking about this sort of Nietzschean view, and also when you were talking about eminence, all I was thinking about um, was Emerson. And I think we can do the connection here in that Nietzsche was deeply influenced by Emerson, in my view, although plenty of the Germans think this isn't true, although Nietzsche himself says he's very influenced by Emerson, so that's good enough for me. The second <laughs> thing is uh, Emerson is deeply, deeply influenced by radical Protestant traditions. And this idea of eminence is crucial to Emerson and seems to me crucial to yes. ra radical Protestant traditions. The, the other thing is, though, for people who have conventional understandings of Christianity, eminence is, Christianity is the opposite of eminence, right? Like, it's like, oh, that's, it's, there's nothing here. It's all oh. in, in the other world. Oh, go ahead, please. Oh, 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 well, that's a, what you're putting is a, if you will, a platonic view of Christianity. Uh, I would think many, many, uh, there will be many um, unorthodox or heterodox thinkers, some of them quite elite 
in the early modern period who would take a very different view. And, uh, you know, the, the poet John Milton, the poet of the English Revolution, um, didn't believe that. He, he, he thought that he was, he's, his mature position was monistic. So he thought that everything was one substance. And there, was, there was just lesser or greater refinement in, in the cosmos, in God's creation. So the action is very much with us in the here and now. Um, and of course, this, this, you know, the, the connection between Milton, you know, one of the most learned English people they'll ever be, I think. The connection between Milton, government official, civil servant for the Commonwealth, um, and the radicals is, is something that inspired Christopher Hill, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, you can still talk about today and, and we're still learning about it. As soon, Nigel, as soon as we started talking and I was thinking about how we were both in the English department, I thought, oh, no, there's another episode I need to add to this well, series. If you um, want me, to, I'll, I'll talk about Milton if you want. Well, let's, let's, uh, well, let's not do that right now, at least, no, because we need no. to give the ranters their due. But, oh, boy, Milton. No. Although I was, I was referring to the Baptists and um, the attempt to set up polygamous colonies in the 1660s and 70s, which happened in, inside the German-speaking world. Um, a, a group of about 100 English Baptists went and did that. They were in large part inspired by some of Milton's divorce writings. So, mm. so there, there is a real explicit connection. Getting hold of the texts that prove it has taken time, but you know something appeared in manuscript in Germany in 2019 in English. Uh, um, uh, it, it's an argument for divorce so that people who become convinced of being a, um, a particular Baptist can, can divorce their, their spouse who is a not believer and marry their true lover who is somebody in the church. So, and, and, and then in the middle of the tract, it says, and oh, and the best thing of all is polygamy, but it's pretty hard to bring off. So that's the best way of doing it because that's, that's what they were doing in the Old Testament. So, so, so I, I, I think that um, in this highly complex, highly charged, heterodox language where many things are up for grab all of a sudden, the, the, um, the crossover between elite and non-elite or educated and non-educated is, is simply one of the exciting border crossings of, of, of the period. So yes, you should have a show on Milton. So I guess uh, I, have, I have too many thoughts now, but I, I need to push on with the polygamy thing because obviously, so look, looking back, uh, 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 there's a huge critique right now and has been at least since the 80s uh, of the free love period of the 60s for having not actually been free love, but more like free love for men. Free love for men. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And does the, does this is this what the ranters were practicing also not free love but but polygamy to put it a different way. This is a you raise a good question. There are some sort of so so there's a little after the ranters were you know there were two acts of parliament the blasphemy act and then the adultery act which were introduced to shut the ranters down to have a law to 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 act on. And the, the penalties for the Adultery Act were very severe. Although I think what they were trying to do was, was basically get people to, to shut up and stop, stop doing this. 
but no more no more ranting no more, that was the real no, problem there, there were a few noises from cop and others a, a few years later and there's a there's a a treatise that is attributed i'd attributed to cop called divine fireworks from 1657 which is I mean, it describes an oncoming fiery apocalypse. And one of the things it, it rails against is um, posh women, women wearing makeup, women, you know, women acting, uh, acting above their station. And it, and it says, and this is, it's, it's really unpleasant. It says, when this fire comes, you will smell burning flesh. Mm. And it, it really means it. Um, and what I take that to, I mean, one interpretation you might draw from that is that, that inside ranterism, if this is what it is, there's a kind of response to the, the, the empowerment of women, as it could happen in that time, where fine manners, courtesy uh, and cosmetics were, were being used to create a women's space. I think that the, the response from your, your radical Puritan, who might think that the sharing everything is the answer is that this is a threat so that's a that's a fairly in the in the corpus of evidence that we have about the uh, the ranters that's a fairly small piece of it but i think it's quite interesting and significant and and it's certainly true that although you you do you do have the sense i mean there are some letters from cop once the, he gets imprisoned in Coventry with with some other people, and he writes to one of the other ranters, and he he says that that somebody called Mistress Cini, or maybe you would have said her name Cheney. He can. She's also she's been with them. She's she's been locked up in another part of the jail, but we're all together and we have a common understanding, and a sense of of some responsibility for her and protectiveness. So I I think there's evidence that there were women involved in the gestural protest and and that they were they were sort of on the road as if you will as a as a ranter show doing that the with clarkson you 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 get the sense that he he's just convinced that marriage customs no longer matter so it's fine for him to go and sleep with somebody else there's no there's no sense of 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 what he's doing as a kind of subjection there is a i think this is in joseph salmon's it's a it's a if you read his recantation one of his two recantation tracts carefully he's basically saying you know we we thought we really thought we were angels on earth or adam and eve on earth before the fall and uh, the kind of free relationships we had with each other we we didn't we we radically underestimated how this would be seen as as whoredom by those who were outside of it. It's a it was a tragic mistake. And uh, given given how social gender politics worked in in seventeenth century England, he was surely right that that anything that wasn't the, the women who were not part of their fathers or their parents' families or were married to somebody that that, that if they were operating outside of that, they were very vulnerable. And and the charge that they were loose women would be, you know, very very easy to make. So I I think that the there there was they had reached the ranters had generally reached the conclusion that that they were perfected in and they had grace 
And that was beginning to make them behave in ways that most people would find deeply disturbing. There isn't much evidence that, that, that allows us to think about whether there was a gender hierarchy in, in that. I think one of the things that, that radical religion in the English Revolution is noted for is a, a, the spiritual equality of men and women. Remember, Rachel said that um, one of the leveler positions is that, is that there are no innate hierarchies. And, uh, you know, uh, Milton also argues that, by the way. And uh, the, there's a sense with the ranters that, um, and the Quakers that, that men and women are, in their spiritual sense, totally equal and that, that, that they are not the weaker sex on that level. So, um, and, and I think that's behind the, the kind of um, sense of common cause that you have in, uh, with, with women in some of Cop's writing. There, there isn't evidence by them, by people we can reliably identify as, as uh, ranters about their sense of gender equality or gender hierarchy. To jump into the dangerous quagmire of modern parallels, the, the, the recently, the 2018 film by Thomas Clay, Fanny Lie Delivered, which attempts to recreate what would have happened in a, in a you know, if, if some ranters got let loose on a Puritan household. That is, the, the complications of that are acted out and explored quite well. And I'd, I'd simply commend anyone to, to go and watch the movie. The you know in in the in the view of the hostile press and the way the ranters were treated in the courts of law, they were behaving lewdly and and improperly, and it was it was monstrous. The fact that that no serious penalties were exacted of them, no one was was executed or or even banished. Where you know Lilburn was banished for a while, is a measure of, I think, the success of the suppression of it. The protests that have been, as it were, in the realm of political thought and constitutional life, and then in the social structure with the diggers, had actually got into the order of the family. That's really very dangerous indeed. And, and uh, I, you know, there, 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 would have, there must have been few people who could have uh, sympathised with that. But the, the, the theology, the antinomian theology had its followers. And, and, and at, that, at that stress point in 1649 to 50, where the, the radicals had been shut out of the arrangements that made the English Republic, the, 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 the pre-protectorate Commonwealth, that's the, that's the stress point. That's, that's where, as it were, something gives. And the recourse to um, this kind of, it, it almost has an air of desperation about it. But you can imagine that Cop would have thought that people could instantly make selfishness disappear if everyone kissed everyone else. There's something very John Lennon and John and Yoko about it, isn't there? So I, I hesitate to bring this up at this point because this is sort of Protestantism one on one on one, but it's something that's been tickling in the back of my mind the whole time you've been talking. So the, when, when when we think about the, the Calvinism that undermined a great deal of Puritanism, the idea is something like, or, or I guess like the anti-Calvinist or the Catholic idea is like antinomianism, the idea that there are no rules, that you can do whatever you want, is a sort of logical consequence of Calvinism. So if you are saved, 
you can do whatever you want. And obviously the history of concepts like the Protestant work ethic and that sort of thing is there's there's a real bizarre contradiction at the heart of Protestantism is it seems like these people have a theology that says they can do whatever they want. They can they can drink wine and have sex and sin freely. But those goddamn Protestants, they don't do any of that stuff. In fact, they're much more godly than the Catholics, even though it seems like they have been authorized to do whatever they want. And it sounds like what I'm hearing is that the ranters take this idea to the to the place that the Catholics are afraid that the Protestants are going to take it. Does that, that, does that make sense? That's absolutely correct. Well, the, the Protestant, you know, the Lutheran complaint against the Roman church was that it was corrupt. Yeah. And, and, and that it, you know, it was too lax. And, and that's, that's driven to a greater degree in, in, a, in a sort of more refined conceptual way inside Calvin's writings. So I'm sure some Puritans would have regarded ranterism as a kind of popery and a, a, you know a, a reversion to to old to old ways it is absolutely true that Abbey was a was a, a poor boy whom who was who was gotten hold of by calvinist teachers and and was so taken up with um, a, a kind of process of mortification to find out whether he was doing the right thing, the godly thing every day. He talks about this and he talks about um, how it had to be overthrown. So I, th- I think there's a very, very clear example. So, so ranterism and the, you know, the people who, who wanted to live without a visible church order and thought they were strong enough in the Lord so to speak, to do that, um, the seekers, they were called. You know, from the seekers come the ranters. That's how it's usually explained. They, they, were, they had lost faith in the disciplinary mechanisms of Protestantism, how the, how the church structures of the Christian church had been reformed in the Protestant Reformation and, and then further reformed uh, with, with the, the victory of Puritanism in the 1640s. So the, the, and especially the, the Presbyterian church order uh, was something that, that I think uh, was vexing. The Congregationalists or the Independents, as Ariel was explaining, with their uh, autonomous church structure, um, that's more, I think that was more in tune with, with figures like Cop. Clarkson, I think, is, is, as it were, from outside of the idea of um, education as part and parcel of Reformation, from a world of, if not, if not brute agricultural labour, then craftsmanship, getting hold of such knowledge tools. He had some alchemical manuscripts, which he said he used to to kind of equip himself to to be a, a you know a lay a lay preacher so the one of the contexts in which we can understand ranterism is is of the 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 throwing off of traditional clerical authority that the people could make churches outside of episcopally episcopally governed or even presbyterianly governed church structures they can decide to make a, a holy community as they wish because they are, the spirit is with them that's lutheranism the priesthood of all believers we're all priests and and that's that's how the theology of justification by faith alone works so yes you're, you're quite right to point to the fundamental building blocks of protestantism as opposed to the roman church with its reliance on tradition of course um, and the structures that come with that the ranter 
context is a is a kind of is to be seen as a uh, a way of making making a godly community and they 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 were absolutely sure that they they had god or the holy spirit inside them and when they opened their mouths they spoke with it then they wanted to be like that and free themselves of what had become intolerable forms of discipline which to them were painful and um, unrewarding um, in lives that had little prospects so that's that's the way it it was i th- there's a ranterish people if they were sufficiently middle class i think could have assimilated into the kind of mystical versions of pietism that that grow in the later 17th century and into the 18th century and are very recognizable aren't they in the uh, later american prebellum religious um spectrum eastern pennsylvania right yes full of germans from halle you know and the Ephrata community uh, for instance would be a very good example of of that kind of um identity a celibate community of course that but celibacy is another way of of doing all of this yeah it's another way of doing it di- differently yeah. whatever it's not it's not the same yeah. as free love but it, what it is is very much not a, a single bonded pair in marriage i've got i've got a couple of two things that that i should say the 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 category that is usually treated from the 17th into the 18th century as a negative category the uh, enthusiasm that is to say you believe that you are possessed by the holy spirit and uh, or or indeed you know and holy spirit in the traditional trinitarian formulation is part of the godhead and that that empowers you to do to do what you have to do this of course is regarded as irrational it uh, widely theorized as a form of mental illness i i think any of the english radicals could be described in you know as succumbing to an enthusiastic pathology and and one of the things we now know we didn't have a, a very strong view of this um, archival evidence with digitization uh, manuscript church books and so on much more of that has been recovered the actual <laughs> debates of the reception of the ranting materials are quite are quite interesting this has been written up by people and i think we're going to find more of this and one of the things that that i hope you'll be able to explore as you talk to more people is the with this new um newly recovered world of considerable um manuscript uh, you know handwriting records of the english revolution is people saying oh yeah we've read this uh, agreement of the people um yeah we we had a go at uh, deploying some of it in our you know little local corporation and you know maybe this might work it it's that's a, that's more evidence that helps dispel the idea that this that these writings uh, didn't mean anything except exuberant extremism in the time they they began it sounds like what we've got here is that the ranters were in some ways rebelling against the conventional views in a, in a in a way that would be terrifying to a conventional or authoritarian way of being and so then now the difficulty is picking out what parts of the ranters behaviors were the actual things the ranters believed and did and what is the obvious fantasy 
that a authority figure would think the ranters were believing and doing once they have claimed that they have God in them and they can do whatever they want. And if I've, if, if I've understanding that correctly, that seems to be the central problem with the ranters is it's hard to unpick what they were doing yeah. from what the authorities were fantasizing that's they fair. were doing. I, I admire your clarity of, of judgment there. I think that's really, that's really it. I, I think that, so I think Abby is a cop wanted not not unlike punks to say let's stop being pretentious pretentious means we harm each other let's acknowledge a, a common humanity which is actually a divinity too and let's stop people being oppressed and impoverished we can all enjoy a commonwealth clarkson is is somewhat different and it's a it's an astonishing and in some ways quite troubling alternative theology which says, you know, as, as the phrase was, you know, we're all one flesh and you know what that means. So, you know, let's, let's enjoy, let's enjoy it as we can. That was very troubling and it would probably trouble most of us today. And we, we, we couldn't, of course, people, people in the late sixties and, and in the years afterwards did live in alternative forms of relationship or open relationships, which is still, much is made of that. If you read the BBC News website, everything's about, you know, the end of monogamous relationships. But I think, I think um, Clarkson was trying to project something, something quite different in terms of sexual relationships. But what he's talking about and the other texts that belong with that side of the Ranta corpus, that's quite different, I think, from the, from the way in which Ranta orgies uh, are written up um, in the hostile literature. I just think this, I think this example is perfect, Nigel. I don't think any of us know right now how to, how to unpack the current sexual practices from the, the mainstream media's uh, terrified write-up of these changes in sexual practices that are, that are so scary. How would, how would you unpack them? How can, how can you disentangle them? I can't disentangle them in 2023. That's a very good, that's a very good point. And the fact that medical knowledge and you know, best medical advice is part of the current predicament. It has its resonances in the 17th century, where where quite elevated people, you know, highly educated divines, uh, have theological positions which aren't too removed. One final example, which I think is really revealing, and and recently recovered evidence uh, enables us to understand it. There was a so one of the um, perfectionist sects that emerges from basically the Rhineland, uh, the family of love. So Hendrik Nikolai's uh, uh, mid, earlier and mid-16th century self-proclaimed prophet with his own retinue of writing. And I think most of his career as a merchant was spent in Cologne. And the family's writings were spread far and wide in Northern Europe and the family's proselytizers came to England in the Elizabethan period, in the late 16th century. The, fa- the family of love are, are seen as basically seekers. Cobb's early writing where he's, he's, he's basically trying to throw off the educational system. He's basically saying conventional Latin grammar is, is a, um, a weird, decayed, mistaken way of, 
um, actually getting access to the Holy Spirit. And this is what it this is what it it really means, and this is what it should mean. And he at that point he invokes the family of love. One of the questions is: Were there hidden pockets of familists in England through the period, down into the later 17th century? And the answer is yes. So these were these were um, typically familists would be church wardens. You know the the people who did the you know they'd have uh, middling sort callings, but they'd you know they'd keep the church in order. And they you know, and and the the familist the familist profession is you if you accept my authority you're saved. My authority the authority of Hendrik Nicolai's, and uh, you must you must in order to preserve that sacredness you must uh, adopt the religion of whatever is the public religion of wherever you are you must be nicodemists well the the man who married milton for the third time a, a sometime fellow of christ college cambridge robert gell or gel g e w l, -L um, who had a rich living in central london and a great library and he he argued uh, he's a very very learned man he was trying to to um, reconcile different systems of divinity, including, as it were, Christian alchemy with Orthodox um, Protestantism. He wanted to, re he proposed retranslating the Bible to take the suicide. You know, he thought it was too, the English translations were too Calvinist, too predestinarian. And, and he was very concerned about a suicide principle or a despair principle being uh, buried inside English Protestantism by these translations. And at the point of the, the restoration he goes to the bishop of london and says um you know um okay so the rules have changed and and gel is you know in many ways very respectable and he says um look i've got these guys in my congregation and they're families we've been happily getting along for the last 20 years and and would it be okay um, Mr. Bishop, if I if I let them carry on being <laughs> families, and the answer was, are you kidding? <laughs> no. So so um, and this has been very well written up by the Stanford historian um, David Como, uh, someone who's done some of the most archivally exciting work. So you you know you might want to talk to him. But that that I think that is a that's a really interesting example of radicalism being assimilated. So so John was honest enough or foolish enough to take it to Sheldon, the Bishop of London. But you you know if you were if you weren't in the capital, would you have to do that? Not necessarily. And so um, I wonder. So so radicalism uh, assimilates, and there's you know there some there um, there was a guy who did some work on. Free, the free miners of Derbyshire in the 18th century who appeared to be using leveller language to um, justify the right to walk out onto the onto the uh, high peak in Derbyshire and do some mining, go into the you know go into a pothole and dig out whatever it was, whether it's a coal or precious metal. Whereas the local landowners were becoming industrial capitalists mm -hmm. and were trying to develop coal mines as we as we know them. And so they didn't want this going on, and they claimed that they owned the right to to do it. So um, the, the question is, how did that language? Where did that language come from across a hundred years? Yeah, and the the idea that some of these communities in America in the nineteenth century, we know they were influenced by Quakers and Mennonites and Bohemians, but the idea that they weren't ranters seems to me almost obvious now, um, and yet. And yet I hadn't thought about that lineage in the slightest. 
But now I, ha I have to let you go. I've already kept you too long. I enjoyed our conversation very much. Thank you, Nigel. It was great. Um, we'll be in touch.